While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. make for dinner today andrew i did not have dinner today wait I had man i had a whole open about the dinner that i made and you're like <laughs> in here not even eating dinner i had a late lunch and then for dinner i had um a couple slices of munster cheese and a handful of m&ms what was the lunch you had? A beef stew followed no, by a I beef wellington? P- I went to Panera and got a pick two, and then I leached off their Wi-Fi for two and a half hours. <laughs> In other words, the life of the internet writer. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I can't skip dinner. It's not possible. I don't know how you do that. You just... I had dinner. It's just I didn't prepare anything. I told you I had some. I had slices of Munster cheese <laughs> and a handful of M Ms. That's not dinner. That's like you're like it a was my street, dinner. You're like a I'm street urchin outside of a charcuterie and a candy store. I'm not like Aladdin. Like a monkey didn't steal me a loaf of bread. <laughs> like I bought this food myself. I would not eat that bread. That monkey touched that bread. You don't know where that monkey's been or that bread's been. What I'm actually I'm eating for dinner is this uh, this nice beer from Dogfish Head. It's called Black and Blue. Okay. And it's uh, got blackberry and blueberry all mixed in it. Cool. Ask me how it is. How is it? It's very good. Oh, my good Lord. <laughs> for anyone who is interested, I was going to talk about how I made a recipe this evening uh called best turkey meatloaf and it was you know it's pretty good was it the best that you've had usually when when you're making turkey recipes best is always like a a relative thing yeah it's still not beef no it's still not oh it's still not beef and (laughs) uh the one the turkey burger recipe that we make is the way you find it is it's called actually delicious turkey burgers. <laughs> like it's some kind of a surprise or something. Well, and I put it and I've never made my own like meatloaf unsupervised before. <laughs> uh, Laura's been there any other time I've made meatloaf. I put it in and I, when she got home and I was like, there's meatloaf happening. And I seemed a little like worried about it because meatloaf doesn't. We'll get to the book this week, I promise. Meatloaf doesn't look like meatloaf when you put it in. It looks like you like s- took someone's brain out and dumped it on a pan, <laughs> and then like sort of loafed it, but then it like slid apart again. The vision I have right now is like when Laura gets home. <laughs> it's like when when the eight year old kid makes makes his mom. Like breakfast in bed on Mother's Day, and like the toast is burnt, and the eggs aren't done, and you spilled orange juice everywhere. 
and cleaning the mess up is like way more work every, than it would have been to make the meal for yourself. Yeah, the cat in the hat comes by and helps me with dinner every day to make sure that the mess is all cleaned up before Laura gets home. <laughs> uh, you want to talk about books? I guess that's what we do on this show, right? Yeah, we always sound confused about it, but yes, that is our that's our premise. It's about our shows about the books you've been meaning to read. Every week, one of us reads a book and then explains it to the other one to hilarious effect. Well, this but, um, week we messed it all up because we yes. both read the book. It we planned it, it though. We didn't do it by accident. <laughs> Whoops. Whoops. What are you reading? Andrew, what did you read this week? Um, I read How Not to Write a Novel by Howard Middlemark and Sandra Newman. What did you read this week? I read How Not to Write a Novel by those people whose names I don't remember, even though you just said them. Howard Middlemark and Sandra Newman. Who are they? Um, I'm going to read you. I'm going to read you. They have they have professional websites, as so many people do, because they're trying to keep it on brand, which I totally respect. Um, Howard Middlemark describes himself as approachable, knowledgeable, and tallish. Wait, tall-ish? Yeah, which I don't know what that means. Sandra <laughs> Newman says, writer of fiction and nonfiction, lives in Manhattan. Um, and then on her uh, on her about page, which is actually titled Regrets, um, she says, employed as a professional gambler, a professor, and a hack writer of pornography. And two of those three things I want a lot more information about. Which gambler, gambler and porno. Okay. What do you, which did you think I was going to talk I about? I didn't know. Okay. <laughs> well, the thing about... um, I don't have anything to say about porno the, books. The thing about both of them is um, the, the approach that this book is taking is, you know, they, they aren't giving you advice about how to do something. They're telling you, if you want your fledgling manuscript not to be paid any attention by anybody this is what you're gonna do and they're both coming at it from the perspective of like veteran editors like they've both written other stuff they both edited stuff um middlemark has had a lot of book reviews published um newman has done a few books but they're both they're both coming at it from the um i guess the world weary professional perspective like they've been doing it for long enough that they spot the mistakes that all the newbies make all the time and so this this book is delivered in a sort of exasperated-ish, sarcastic tone, yeah, to all the all the would-be novelists out there. Yeah, before we we have a lot of stuff to talk about. We got not a, all of which a, is related to this book. So yeah, we got a busy week this week. Um, Middlemark, I think, is interesting. He's done a bunch of ghost writing. Apparently, I wish I could find out what books he's ghost written. I love knowing what books that people ghost write like our friend nick larangis's dad peter larangis ghost wrote a bunch of babysitters club books i think that's which super is cool maybe my favorite thing that i know about anybody <laughs> <laughs> yeah i wish like you hear a lot more about people ghost writing movies i wish i knew more about like book ghost writing like is who is rl stein is a guy, I guess. I'd like to think that he's just R.L. Stein because he's still kicking around. I think he has a Twitter and everything. Are you R.L. Stein? I, I will never tell. I'll <laughs> take it to my grave. <laughs> no, I just it's it's really everything has a story. Like when you when you go to see a movie and it has like 
multiple screenwriting credits and it's like well did these people work together or did they just pass it from person to person because the previous person did not do a good job yeah that's or like yeah it's like oh yeah they didn't it's not like they all got pizza and like said what would make the best snakes on a plane movie it was some guy and do now (laughs) who would he avenge popcorn (laughs) philip philip you write the next scene Great. No, Philip, you're fired, but we still have to credit you. Thanks, Philip. Because you wrote like a couple stage directions that we couldn't get rid of. Well, yeah. As soon as Tony Stark <laughs> read them, he said, I'm doing that. By Tony Stark, I mean Robert Downey Jr. I know that Tony Stark is not a real person. Disclaimer or, over. Or is he? He's a ghost writer. So, yeah, th- that's pretty much all we know about the the authors of this book who are who operate on both sides of the the authorship line like they they have both written their own stuff and they have also critiqued other people's stuff and there there were some there are some good pieces about the way that online publishing works that i've read because i work in online publishing about how the only way to make good money and like move up is to write for a while and then graduate up to being an editor and the thing that those pieces highlight is like how very different those skills are oh yeah totally and and how there should there there really needs to be more room for full time writers who also are paid well and are like senior to other people in their field I guess instead of just the default thing being to go from writing to editing to maybe like the business side I need of an stuff. ideas like, man I yeah. need an ideas man <laughs> this sounds like yeah this basically sounds like what the newspapers were until the internet came along right right I guess. <laughs> Like there are wire services, there are writers, and there are editors. Those are, and, that's, there are, and there are newsies. Don't forget newsies. <laughs> get your papes. Gotta sell them papes. Get your pictures in the pipe. Get your papes quarters here. Papers. Papes, papes, papes. <laughs> that's my favorite scene. Santa Fe. My old friend. <laughs> so that's them. They have some interesting perspective, which we're going to talk about in a bit. But what I think we wanted to get to first, that we've accidentally gotten to second, is... <laughs> Our the last episode we recorded, not the last one we posted, um, the Looking for Alaska episode written Heck by John yeah. Green. Um, we got, I think we got more email responses to that episode than we have ever gotten. Yeah, maybe if for you anything add up that we have ever done. <laughs> yeah, because even the if you added up all the text from social media people being excited about the Fifty Shades episodes, I still don't think you would get to the text in these emails for about looking for alaska yeah um so what did what did people have to say andrew we we were talking about the the great ya debate about who's allowed to read ya who does read it why do they read it and all that kind of stuff yeah um so we got a bunch of really interesting responses on that on that specific question because if if you'll remember the listener who recommended that book to us, the patron who told us we were going to read that book, and then we did. Um, Alex works at a large chain bookstore, and he sells what he thinks is a lot of YA fiction. And he says that he sells a lot of it to like twenties, thirties, like millennial-ish and post and just post millennial-ish women. Just to use that term as like a shorthand, even though I think it's terrible. Sure. <laughs> And we, yeah, we got a ton of responses just responding to that question. Like who, 
why do people buy it who who should be allowed to read it why do they read it like is it escapism what is it just because it's easy to read like what what is the deal what do people have to say don't you're you're leaving me in suspense here okay that's i'm building i'm building up to something so the first the first email I want to refer to is uh, from Adrienne, who wrote a blog post that I think we'll post on our Facebook page at some point this week. And she had a couple of different answers to the to the question, and some of them are about YA in general, and some of them were about John Green in particular. So about John Green, she says, um, John Green writes some of the best YA fiction, in my opinion. He is a clever, thoughtful, witty writer who makes even adults think hard about the subject matter. Furthermore, as a high school English teacher with her master's degree, even I've had to look up the definitions of some of the vocabulary Green uses. In short, comparing most other YA fiction to John Green's is not a fair comparison. That's and I d- okay. Have you read John Green? Like I, I no, no I've not for that podcast. Okay, <laughs> um, I guess I would agree with that generally. And and I think I, I I referred to it a little bit in that episode. Is that what one of the things that elevated it above? the sort of generic teen coming of age story was that he wrote characters who were clearly different from one another. Yeah. Which I think is a, a shortfall of a lot of fiction is that everybody ends up sounding the same. Well, and he, and he writes them, he writes in a way that's like engaging, um, not depressing, even as he's dealing with depressing subject matter. Like it's all, it's all very lively, mm. which, which helps. Yeah. I wonder too, if there, if this is not directly about John Green, but, Perhaps why John Green can edge this way, as uh, Adrienne points out, is that teen the, your teens like that's a a real nebulous time frame, right? It's as arbitrary as any other block of time that we've decided. You know, you've got people who are you know precocious ten year olds reading teenage stuff, and you've got people in their 20s reading teenage stuff and then you've got teenagers who would rather be in either group like they probably hate being teens that's just part of being a teenager so you're in this incredibly like fluid period in your life where you don't even know who the heck you are except whatever t-shirts you bought lately so i wonder if that has to do with kind of the broader and the broader challenges of defining this genre or like what gets put in this genre, you know? Well, and that's that's actually something that uh, that Adrienne brought up later in her email was that um, about reading YA fiction in general, we as the readers get to turn back the clock and experience some of these events all over again, but through the eyes of someone who's experiencing it for the first time. In Looking for Alaska, the loss the characters feel is raw and new and heart-wrenching. Same goes for The Fault in Our Stars and even Paper Towns. John Green expertly handles these major life events, puts the reader in the passenger seat next to these characters as they experience raw emotion and often pain. Um, and then there was another email kind of on the same, on the same subject from uh, Colleen, another person who, who wrote in about this. And she says, YA fiction really didn't get hugely popular until the late nineties and early two thousands. And even then you're getting into a lot of quote unquote trope fiction as Andrew described. It wasn't varied, but now there has been a development in YA where authors are talking about serious things such as depression, death, or even just figuring out your life. Uh, my friend says this rich type of YA wasn't incredibly accessible to some while they were in the YA years, and they are just now going back and reading them. To quote her directly, there's a lot to be said for YA. Sometimes adults can get whole new perspectives on issues by reading through a teenager's eyes. 
Besides, as adults, we may need to be reminded that teenagers are not just all angst. I think everyone should have some quality YA in their life because of the interesting perspectives. That's but maybe that maybe that's just the need for job security and me talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's been there's I've listened to some stories like some pop psychology stories, and this is maybe tangentially related, but in terms of like YA fiction building empathy in the reader for teenagers i guess right mm-hmm. uh that the the teenage brain is like designed for risk taking and like risky behavior because that's how it acquires novel ideas you know and you mm-hmm. you learn the most about the world by taking risks and that's why so many teeter teens kind of like do stuff they know they're they're not supposed to do and they're pushing boundaries and uh that's what that's what they're psychologically wired to do at that point in time. Right. So mm-hmm. like the quintessential parent getting mad at their teen for, you know, staying out too late or, or getting into trouble or something like that. There's some evidence at least that that is there's biological reasons for that happening. Now, like yeah. whether or not they should do whatever specific thing got them in trouble is another question. Um but I think in terms of people having a little cutting teens some slack, you know, teens get a bad <laughs> rap. They're always, you know, drinking coke and texting. And I don't know when it was, but one day I woke up and I knew that I thought teens were the worst. <laughs> At some point in my in my mid twenties, was I it Snapchat? I recognized was it Snapchat. I, I don't even think it was Snapchat. I just recognized that. There was this clear dividing line that had come up at some point in the last couple of years between me and teens, and I could not be happier to be on the not teen side of that dividing line. Yeah, that's true. Like now I get in a path train car with a bunch of teens who are talking loud about something, and I'm just like, oh, teens, <laughs> I want to go home and eat reduced fat wheat thins and go to bed. <laughs> It was either One Direction or iCarly. I'm not sure which one killed it for me. That's when I knew I wasn't a teen. When, when iCarly became popular. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you have any other uh, YA I have, thoughts I mean, to I, share? I have a whole lot more stuff. Um, there was an email from Yelena going back to the going back to kind of the same well and talking about the the blurring of lines between different age groups is uh, she thinks uh, part of the recent preoccupation with YA is that in large part our generation and I'm kind of shuffling myself in with you guys. I'm 27. I think you guys are around my age. I'm 29 and you're 28, right? Yep, yep. So yeah, basically um, is less adulty than other generations that have come before. A lot of people live with their parents for a lot longer than they used to. And I feel like even when you were essentially living an adult life, living on your own, paying your own bills, owning property, etc., you don't necessarily feel like an adult. That maybe adulthood in its current state is not necessarily the way we expected it to be when we were growing up. And because adulthood is more fluid now than it's ever been, that people maybe feel more free to read what they want and not what they, quote unquote, should be reading at their age. That's fair. Which I think is like part of growing up for me was was thinking back to my parents because they I mean, they had all of us in their early to mid 20s. Like I was born when they were 21 Mm. and then my sister was born two years later. And then my brother was born three years after that. 
And so they were when they had all three of us, they were younger than I am now. <laughs> yeah, but so my mom had me when she was 30. So I've got 2 years to have have two daughters wait five years and have a son (laughs) right (laughs) to do the math in the same way so yeah it's it's bizarre to think about that and you see it in a lot of the kind of period tv and other movies that are popular right now like i still remember now i haven't watched mad men in years but i still remember in the first season when they're like when i think it's pete right is like buying an apartment or or a condo in the city right and like he's what 23 24 yeah he's like 24 25 and he's you know just gotten married and his 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 whole thing is that he's like trying to break into adulthood and it's not going the way he thinks but the expectations for what he was supposed to have accomplished by then were way higher yeah um, but it's like that it's like the the main thing about growing up is that you realize that grown-ups before you were not as infallible infallible as they, <laughs> as they as they seem like they were like no your parents didn't have all the answers even though there's a pretty good stretch of your life where you assumed that they did cuz they were the ones who were in charge of you and you were too busy like rolling in the dirt to like know right i was too busy with this big mixing bowl where I mixed like milk and water together and I was just stirring it, getting it all over the carpet. Did you to, do that? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was too busy doing that. Or like my sister was too busy taking nail polish and putting it all over the wall. Like we were too busy doing that stuff to worry about our parents not knowing best. Come on I'm over not, to Chef not, Andrews. I have, have some not. milk water. I'm mixing the milk with the water and the milk water. The secret ingredient is mixing. <laughs> I have not thought about that in years and years. I don't. I have no idea why. I just thought. Have I told the story about the time I just walked up and bit a giant zucchini on our on our kitchen counter when I was like seven? I hope I haven't told this story before because it's so good. My bro- my little brother used to bite potatoes <laughs> like they were apples. But what he would do, like, he was like, does he have two- teeth made of steel? Like, he was what? like two years old, so he just had these little baby teeth, and so he wouldn't even eat the whole potato. He would like take a bite out of the potato and then lose it somewhere. <laughs> and so months later, you look behind like a, a cabinet or something. And you find this potato with one bite out of it with all the eyes curved out. That's like some panicula nonsense. <laughs> like, what is going on in your house? So, what are yeah, all these my, mystery I just, potatoes? I, I think back to what my parents must have thought about all these things. And <laughs> I'm just impressed at their fortitude. Like, I don't know how I would respond to the same situations, you know? No, I got hit in the head with a wiffle bat once because I was doing batting practice back to back with another kid. Go figure. He's going to follow through on his home run and hit me in the head. Mm-hmm. I broke the wiffle bat with my head just for the He's record. The, the Mark McGuire of Craig, why, hitting people Why does it look bats? like you have a twin growing out of your forehead? Well, we were <laughs> batting practice, Mom. Dumb. 
Let's talk about this book. I'm sorry, oh, poor, everyone oh, else who wrote parents. in. There were some um, awesome emails this week. There's even there's one more that I want to get to. Oh, okay. Okay. From Kara. Yeah, of course. Who talked about tropes in YA fiction. And she says that looking for Alaska sounds like it adheres to the Newberry formula. And mm-hmm. she provided a link. Um, this is apparently Catherine Ferris King wrote a column. And she describes a formula for who's going to win the Newbery Medal, and it, it goes thusly. Hmm. Um, our book opens in a small town, or perhaps a community that is isolated for some special reason, like the crew of a boat or the ghosts of a graveyard. We, slif- we swiftly meet our protagonist, a kid hero who is trundling along, feeling lost. Perhaps our protagonist has big dreams, or perhaps their world is limited to their dusty town. Either way, they are more or less a blank slate, and the arrival of a doomed catalyst will turn their world upside down. The doomed catalyst may take several different forms. There may be a tough but cute animal friend. There might be a person with a wise soul, usually someone marginalized and outcast in society. Check for disability, advanced age, and racial or cultural minorities, or just an oddball. You might even have both versions, with the animal friend teaching patience, responsibility, and fun, and the wise soul teaching our hero the grown-up truths you won't find in a textbook. Our hero will run into perils in their town, small as it is. The tiny size of the community means that the conflict, whether person versus person or person versus society, is inescapable. Usually there is some pressing social issue that drives the action, such as racial or cultural conflict. Our hero might find solace in nature, but frequently she, t- she or he takes up some hands-on activity that is described with the clearest action verbs of the book. And a landscape isn't entirely grim. If your protagonist is male, there is a 50% chance of them encountering their own sort of romance, even if it's just blushes and a first kiss. If your protagonist is female, the chance of a romance plotline occurring rockets up to around 90%. (laughs) But don't expect blue skies and happiness. Somewhere along the line, usually at the halfway point or three quarters mark, the penny drops, the shoe falls, the blow you've all been waiting for. Alas for the animal friend and or the wise soul, death by Newberry Medal collects its grim quota. (laughs) Oh, no. <laughs> Why? Because the book has got to end, but growing up is so damn complicated. There are leaps in maturity followed by regressions. There are uneven strides in different areas of life. It's a solitary journey, and the boundaries of adulthood are murky and seem to get murkier all the time. Adolescence takes a decade, but innocence can be killed with the stroke of a pen. And wow. Death by, Death, Bar- Death by Newberry Metal throws the kid hero into maturity with one fell swoop as they learn about the cruelty of the world, the circle of life, the power of love, possibly a little something about the afterlife, and finally emerge as a stronger being with the power to endure a capricious fate. Uh, so, yeah, I think that a lot of that... Way to, way to just reduce all storytelling to a formula. I love Death by Newberry Metal. Death by Newberry Metal is pretty good. To return to the bridge to Terabithia for a second. That's pretty good. <laughs> or where the red fern grows, where the little puppies die. You don't bum me out, Andrew, okay? Sorry, okay. And then she she closed her email by she also mentions the Manic Pixie Dream Girl formula. Uh which, yeah, of um, course. If you if you are not familiar with that one, just think about Zoe De Chanel and literally anything. <laughs> And then she closes by saying, where does that guy get off deciding who should read what? Dude works in a bookstore selling paper books. He should be supportive of anyone who comes in and gives him money for a book instead of buying it off Amazon. Look at me, judging the judgy guy. (laughs) Starting beef. I like it. Putting Alex on blast. I like some beef on this show. 
I expect a counter blast in our inbox at some point this week. Okay. So, Andrew. Yo. Again, we're going to get to this book. We're going to get to this week's book. We are. We just got so many emails. But before we start in on how not to write a novel, I do have a plea to our listeners. Okay. Hit me. We are at 97 iTunes reviews. I like big round numbers, and I cannot lie. I need us to be at 100, preferably more. Ratings and reviews are the best way for new people to find the show on iTunes. If you listen to the show on iTunes, head on over there and help us out. I like big round numbers, and I cannot lie. But if we get past 100, we're not going to have a big round number anymore. Like, all that will be, all we'll have to do is get to 200. But that, well, oh man, (laughs) don't even get me started. But I can savor 100 for a good long time knowing that we reached it. So just head on over to iTunes, I guess. You, the you can listener. find that link on our website at overduepodcast.com, which we'll talk about a little bit more at the end of the show. Now that we've had what I think is our longest listener email segment Stop to date. Stop it. It's been full of great content. In, no, it's been full of awesome content. I'm just saying that that all of you guys with your awesomeness in our like 112th episode <laughs> <laughs> drove our longest reader email segment to date. We are finally going to talk about how not to write a novel, and it turns out there are a lot of things you can do wrong. Craig, because I've been talking for a while, you should tell me some of the things about this book that you liked. Oh, okay. Or even some of the some of the advice that they gave. Well, that that resonated with you the most. Okay, so this, just just talk about how the book works. I suppose. Yeah. Um, the book is set up as a uh, so you want to write a novel. And you don't want to get it published, basically. Um, So all of the advice that is given is ostensibly in this kind of satirical, parodical, like, this is the best way to have someone light your novel on fire. (laughs) Um, Which I will say, like, I've slammed through the first 40% of this book, like, really enjoying it and and, uh, laughing and having a good time. That kind of cheeky tone kind of wore on me a little bit. Did you feel the same way? Like, I don't know. Just the re- maybe it was just because I was reading it so fast. Maybe this is like a good like coffee table bathroom book. Um, sure. Where like you just leave it and come back to it a little bit. Well, because it's it's presented in this in this format that I think maybe lends itself to really quick reading, which is I I've read this in small snippets over the course of a week and a half so maybe i didn't i didn't tire of the yeah i read it a little i read it in like three or four days yeah yeah so it's the way it's set up is they first um give a name to the thing that you're not supposed to do um so I'm, i'm gonna read a segment called the after dinner sermon okay in which the author wields a mallet and then they give an exaggerated prose example of what they're talking about Mm -hmm. and then after that they describe in further detail like what that is and why you shouldn't do it okay go ahead no you don't understand pueblo gruff said keeping the gun trained on the shivering drug kingpin's forehead it's not just about what drugs do to people it's about what money does to people Money can be just like a drug. You would do anything for money, just as an addict would do anything for your cocaine. 
When money becomes more important than family, useful work, and community commitments, we've lost our bearings. That's why your relationships with women, however beautiful they are, are finally shallow and unsatisfying. I think I hear envy in your voice, Pendejo, said Pueblo Espadrille, sneering ironically. Ha, laughed Gruff. When you have sacrificed everything to money, you lose your ability to value those things. You think I envy your money, but in fact, the only person I envy is the humble senorita you despise and maltreat. The life has dealt her a cruel hand. She has maintained her dignity and her ability to love. She is the rich one, not you. It is the ability to love that makes us true kingpins of the cartel of humanity. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And I read that one because I really, that last line actually made me laugh for a while. (laughs) But there, the, the point, you know, the thrust they're trying to make is like, you cannot make your novel have a really pointed lesson that literally everybody already knows, like spelled out so explicitly. Yeah. Do you, do you have, can you think of one that does that? I don't know that we've read one for the show that really does that. No, I mean, it's, it's. It's very much like the after school special kind of thing. Or like yeah. even even if you think to like this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. Oh like, no. <laughs> it's a thing that makes that takes a really ham fisted like metaphor and just expands it until yes. everybody is tired of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it should be noted that uh this book is really geared towards towards commercial writers. In a way, not like you're writing jingles and whatever. Well, the Uh, one piece of positive advice that they give right at the end is the novelist should always aspire to be paid. Yes. Yes. And I don't think there's any shame in that at all. No, but I I mean more that they're not they're not writing this book for people with like capital L literary aspirations. They're actually like I think some of their examples that kind of break down if if it were a literary book quote unquote like they mm-hmm. and they mentioned that um i'm trying to find the one that i found um, i mean i think what they're what they're doing is is yeah it's less about talking to people who have capital l literary literary aspirations and it's more about it's more about that person who has the day job but is also writing the great american novel you know like the, the, those people i don't think will necessarily have the context to know that what they're doing has been done a million times before. Yeah. But I, I also think that what this book is trying to do is say that every story has been done a million times before. And what you're trying to do is write one that's entertaining. Like there's a lot of emphasis on writing a book that is enjoyable for the reader, you Mm know, something like the, something like the goon squad, the visit from the goon squad that we read, right. That is like, sort of mixed media and there's no through line and there's all a whole chapter in second person like conventionally this book would tear that apart because it's it's trying to be obtuse in some ways you know Mm -hmm. this is for the person who is just trying to break into the industry and get a book published and get it like on the shelf in a bookstore where someone might be interested in it or even just get to the first stage where you've got an editor and so you've got your foot in the door, you know? Like, yeah. I think it's totally possible that, and I, I mean, we know people who this has happened to. Like, we've had people get a manuscript to an editor. The editor says, This specific thing is maybe not what I'm looking for, but I really like the cut of your jib and can you write me something else? Yes. Um, 
And the th- the thing about it that that they really really drive home that that struck a chord with me is the phrase real life mm. uh, appears 28 times in this book. And one of the biggest things that they're talking about is you know like, like real life is full of repetitiveness and like mundanities and and you know there if you're striving for realism in your book that doesn't mean like playing a thought 10 times over in your protagonist's head or like describing your protagonist as they drive down a road or like eat their sandwich or or do their laundry or whatever like you need to you need to cut to the chase and and paraphrase the rest and and like having your making your character have realistic human reactions to things that are happening is more important than having the minutia of their life like just spread out over the length of a novel you know well well, yeah because the realism that you really need to worry about is the emotional realism that a reader is going to identify with, right? Mm-hmm. Cause the reader is human. And even if you're writing a book about cats or cats, um, they need to have emotions that are identifiable as human. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, kind of even what you were saying, Andrew, though, like, real life actually plays a couple different points in this book. They talk, they talk about uh, each chapter or each section of the book is broken up by uh, a big part of storytelling. So there's a chapter on plot. There's a chapter on character. There's a chapter on style. Uh, and the, in the one in plot, they talk about like all of the extraneous stuff that people leave in stories. Like you were saying, Andrew, because that's what really happened, right? Like, Oh, and then they drove the car to get to the place. Or then they had breakfast again, and it wasn't any different. <laughs> um, one of my favorites was the, like, how monogamy can be boring. <laughs> like, characters having sex again isn't innately interesting unless they're learning something by it. When we were talking about talking about this book, I sort of... I think like 40% jokingly said that it needed to be divided up into books that were not 50 shades of gray and <laughs> books, books that are 50 shades of gray, because there were a lot of examples in this where I thought immediately of 50 shades of gray. Yeah. Even though this was published in 2008, which is I think before 50 shades of gray even became a thing. Uh, there was a, there was a time when um, they mention two characters John Quill and Melinda and <laughs> they use they use the phrase the junkie junket uh where oh, it's like the Catherine Cavanaugh inquisition that was the exact note that I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that there's also the like um the other thing about real life that I thought was interesting was you can't just take random events for granted and then say, but that really happened to me. Right. Like your character just can't, they can't find a bag of money in the middle of the street unless you have chosen to make your novel explicitly about that. Like you can't, they, they'd say, can't, you can't do the deus ex machina. Well, and not just deus ex machina, but even in the middle of a book, it can't, unless your book is wrestling with how coincidences work or like man versus fate out there in the world, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just have stuff happen to people. 
right. unless that unless that is the arc of your novel or then the character at least has to react to it as if they know that that's unlikely right the one of the earlier laughs in the book is when they're talking about the days ex machina and they say that it is french for are you f-ing kidding me <laughs> <laughs> yeah well because it comes from we've talked about this in earlier episodes like it comes from greek theater and it comes from at the end of the story when the god shows up to put humanity back in its place and that has like its own role in the cathartic process and community process of greek theater it has no point being in your coming of age novel in rural Mm -hmm. michigan right like zeus shouldn't show up after you like win the tigers game and like put everyone on blast and light some people on fire and have sex with some folks and call it a day. Right. Cause that's what Zeus would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like th- there were, I, I noted a lot of examples of things where a book that we had read did one of these things, but I also highlighted a lot of examples where a book that we had read did this thing, but did it well. Sure. And a lot of the time what they're saying is not not that this, you know, this thing that they're talking about has never, ever worked, but that it works so rarely that probably you shouldn't try it. Great. Is there one or two that you're thinking of in particular? Um, There is. We talked about in our episode about The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell um, about the way that she described this society this like if you if you do not listen to this episode you should because i liked how it turned out but basically some people (laughs) some people because i sounded pretty good on it because i was pretty smart (laughs) uh these people from earth make first contact with an alien race and you spend most of the time uh in the heads of humans but you spend some of the time in the heads of, of alien people and one of their one of their snippets of advice is like don't don't make people spell everything out to each other. Like you would not write a book about Vikings in which there are two Vikings talking about Viking conventions to each other. Like they would not, they would not describe to each other things that were understood. Yes, of course. Um, It's uh, the trope is called hello. I am the medieval knight in which characters supply their own context. And yeah, it says the Vikings explain Viking customs to each other at every turn, despite never having met anyone who wasn't a Viking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought the sparrow did this well. Um, they they highlight at the end of this little passage. Um, one workable tactic is to introduce a foreigner into the Vikings' myths and exploit the mutual misunderstandings to address the specifics of their respective cultures. The Vikings can then explain their culture without straining credulity. And what we talked about in the sparrow episode is that the that book did a good job of giving us. Um, uh, Supari, who is kind of an outsider in his own culture to describe that feeling like like what the culture is and what it is to be outside it and i thought it was was handled particularly well in that in that book Mm. and there were a couple other passages i highlighted which i don't necessarily have to go into in detail like there were there was there's one note that i wrote that just says lolita if it was a worse book And the the trope is the fig leaf when the author has his cake and eats it. And it's like in an attempt to deflect criticism, the author apologizes as he goes, pointing out the minstrel show, strip club visit, or cheap all-purpose servants in a third world setting are terribly, terribly distasteful to him. Yeah. And he disapproves as much as anyone. 
Meanwhile, he continues to wallow in these scenes, exposing what everyone instantly recognizes as the world of his fantasies. Yeah, I, so, I thought about Lolita yeah. there, too. We've talked yeah. about stuff like that. Yeah. Um, there's another one. This is... Okay, I'm glad that you brought this up, because this is definitely what was running through my head as I was reading parts of this book, is uh, how many, like you're saying, how many of these examples work in the great literary canon, um, but don't work if you're just like joe schmo first writer right yeah it's important to recognize that these examples are the exceptions and not the rule so like the one about speech tags and whether or not you need to use them you know whether or not you can just go down an entire page with just quotation marks and yes. know he said yeah. or she said and, and that I, was one of my well, that was one of my earlier notes is because uh, hemingway does that hemingway and does he, that all the and time. he actually does that like bad he it, it's not the exception to the rule like he just he does that and he got away with it because he's Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> well, I think, okay, fair. I think some of his work uses that to very good effect. I think some of it, yes, can get distracting. It doesn't mean that it's not confusing as, as anything, though, you know? I suppose, but I think... Like, there were there were some sections in uh, Farewell to Arms where I had to go back to the beginning of the conversation and count lines to know who was saying what. Yeah, I guess. And like maybe at the time that was not such a thing, but but yeah, know. that's that's what that made me think of. Yeah, um, there's another example. There are two like smaller examples later. One is the uh, like the going to bed scene or whatever the bedridden scene they mentioned. Like mm-hmm. this is in the don't waste the reader's time with stuff that just happens in life. And there's no reason to show a character going like talk about a character going to bed or waking up unless they wake up with someone interesting. And I instantly thought about uh, Queequeg and Ishmael in Moby Dick (laughs) and how there's like three pages of them in bed together, like hanging out under the covers. (laughs) It's Uh, just fun, guys. It's just fun to talk about. It's just fun. And then there was another one that uh, in the long list of things we... uh, Reasons that uh they won't just like your hero uh sorry the reader will not like your hero just because he meditates he is in the middle of reading your own favorite authors he listens to your favorite bands and knows the liner notes he can whip up an amazing omelet from quirky ingredients he has green (laughs) eyes he lives in a state of bohemian disorder he goes to Burning Man. I think those are like the same two. He stopped going well, to Burning Man point, when I they went hate... commercial. Oh uh, yeah, I was just gonna say. At this point, I think I would hate somebody because they went to Burning Man. Uh, the one that stuck out to me is, although he is a longshoreman, he shows a remarkable love of capital A art. <clears throat> which, to me, it actually reminded me of uh, Revolutionary Road, which is a book that I read many years ago. It was made into a movie. Before we had a hit literary Before we podcast. had a literary podcast when I just like read books for whatever if we reason. Just, if we recorded a podcast called Jim Henson's Overdue Babies, <laughs> it would be an episode of that. And the main character was a longshoreman and he has loftier dreams for himself. Not a specific like love of art, but that's just an example of the like person with a menial job who has higher aspirations. And that's certainly a trope. Uh, and shouldn't, as they're pointing out, that can be a part of your novel, but doesn't, you can't rest on it. I guess a lot of those examples are like, you can't just put that out there and assume that the reader's going to read the rest of your book. 
Um, right. And there there was one more broad category um, as we kind of wrap up that they that they pointed out that I thought was interesting. Something that they said repeatedly was that a certain type of scene would work in a movie or TV Oh, but would yeah. not work in a novel. Like you can't, you couldn't have a training montage. You can't have a bunch of physical comedy happen in a book. I think that's that speaks to the audience to which this book is intended, which is maybe a, an audience that has seen more TV or movies than they've read books. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. And um, they're just, they're just. There are a lot of story conventions that just they work with visuals and they don't work with novels like you can you can in a tv show in five seconds do an establishing shot that tells you like everything that you need to know about the location that would take just pages and pages of book like i've watched uh, i rewatched breaking bad recently which i think is is my favorite drama i think the simpsons is my favorite tv show but breaking bad is my favorite drama um and that show uses the landscape of New Mexico to just amazing effects. Like every, every shot of the landscape is, is beautiful, both in the, both just the landscape itself and the way that it's framed and the way that it's presented. Well, to and the you, you and I were talking about this the other day, even the set dressing and the production design on that show is phenomenal. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of the kind of current age of TV dramas, do lean into this to some point, but Breaking Bad was particularly unique in this regard. Yeah, that but all those imagine, locations were super memorable. You mm-hmm, know, yeah, like imagine, imagine the the white residence, like the house that they lived in. Yeah, for that entire show, and that that <clears throat> house is used as an anchor through all five seasons, and toward the end of the last season, it's it's used, like it's 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 been. I don't want to ruin that show for anybody who hasn't seen it because you really, really need to watch it. But it's been haven't. sullied and subverted. Yes. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it, the show uses camera angles that it's used before to highlight how different it is than it was when things were quote-unquote normal. And you can't, you just can't, every time a character is in a room in your book, you cannot describe the room that they're in. Like, you just can't, you can't do it. Yeah. It's about... It's about recognizing the the virtues and the limits of the medium that you're trying to work in. Is you're not writing a screenplay, you're writing a book. Well, and they do take a little bit of time at the end of this book uh, to talk about how not to pitch your book, which I thought was smart of them uh, mm-hmm. as a good way to wrap it. And one of the things they talk about is the book to movie pipeline and how you shouldn't in your pitch letter just tell the editor what a great movie it'll make and who you'll cast in it and how many dollars it'll rake in and you i wonder if some of the montage laden books or books that don't really know how to do the things with language that other mediums can do visually is kind of what you're saying andrew Mm -hmm. um and tantamount one of the first rules that this book lays out is you just got to read you just got to read other books so that you know what books are capable of and what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Obama than... said that he was going to veto the book to movie pipeline. You stopped listening to what I was saying about <laughs> 30 seconds ago. <laughs> I heard it. I heard it. You just turned I, off your I ears. I was listening to what you were saying, but no, I no, felt no. like I needed to squeeze that in at the first possible All you were hearing was like a bad Obama impression just going, look, 
<laughs> we need to uh, shut down the books to movie pipeline. Look. That's all he says. Um, what else? Oh, but the, the only other thing I really want to talk about with the book, Andrew, is that it occasionally, probably for the better, it didn't stick religiously to its satirical tone. You know? There, okay. it, right? Like, did you not experience that? I felt like it. When the, the thing about the one passage I read about the, you know, the person being the cartel of life or whatever, is that a lot of their examples would build on examples that they that they had set before. Like they said that if you have like a Mexican character in your book, they should not speak like stupid pigeon Spanish where they'd speak regular English, except they call people senor. Like yeah. That shouldn't be a thing that they do. And they had people do it in that passage. And part of the part of the fun i guess of reading it front to back is is recognizing the tropes like piling up on each other and they don't acknowledge that they're doing that but they are definitely doing that uh well i was saying even yes and but i will even admit that because i was kind of reading it probably a bit faster than i should have uh i started to skip some of like kind of breeze through the example passages like the goofy ones and just i just wanted to read what they had to say about each example you know what i mean like I just could, I just wanted to know what their point was because I was interested right. to know what their point was. Um, but usually, after they would get past that joke example, they wouldn't stick to the "and here's how to write a terrible book" voice. They would, <laughs> they would actually then just tell you what worked and what didn't. That voice you know? usually showed up at, the, up at the beginning of their chapters where they're like real snarky where, like hey, where they, hey hey yeah they go into that fiction where like okay now you know how not to do all these things but if you really want to make your book impervious to publishing then you need to follow these rules too yeah which is super snarky which got, yeah and I, a little I, much I, yeah i'm i'm with you it gets a little very uh, a little wearing which by is the end why is that within the like kind of drier but still useful sections of the book they kind of abandon that when necessary yeah. i appreciated that yeah but to, but to go back to what you were talking about when i was thinking of that obama joke sure whatever um <laughs> they they their advice is to read a lot and i think this book is aimed primarily at people who want to write a book but who have not necessarily read a lot who have who have more experience with other forms of storytelling and they're trying to explain to you like what tropes from that form of storytelling do and don't work. Like, do make your reader care about the protagonist for actual reasons. Don't describe every thought that they have in painstaking detail. You know. Yes. Uh, don't. What was there was a really good one about like not uh, betraying, not being anachronistic with social conventions. They pointed out a trend in historical oh, yeah, fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that was good. A, a trend in historical fiction of having uh, homosexual characters and other characters being like totally cool with it. And not that you need to make those books about um, homosexual issues or, or persecution when you're exploring another part of history but don't pretend that characters from 400 years ago feel the same way about things that you do now yeah was really what they were saying and to go back to mad men like i think mad men 
which is now wrapping up, which I'm really sad about. I, I've watched the whole thing, which you have not done. Nope. But I think that Mad Men considered as like a body of work is really feminist. Mm. Um, it, it's tried to, to do kind of the same thing with race, but especially through the, the Peggy character and maybe a little bit of the Joan character too. Um, it explores feminism. It gives those characters... It, it it gives them rewards like it doesn't just it doesn't just walk all over them all the time. But there are also a lot of other characters in that universe who do not who do not give them the respect that they get from some other characters like the like the respect that Joan or Peggy gets from Roger Sterling or Don Draper is not is not reflected in the response that they get from just man character a or whatever like they, they, it walks a good line between being progressive in the in the stuff that it talks about and the way that it talks about it while also not ruining the fact that it's a 1960s period drama you know yeah i, I also want to point out that on an episode about how not to write a novel we talk a lot about tv they talk a lot about tv i suppose they do have like their subtle Jack Bauer references. There's like one particular, cause that's, you were saying earlier, there's a couple like fake novels that they are referencing throughout the book. And one mm. seems very much like a 24. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we're running out of time. I want to move on to all the folks who were kind enough to reach out to us this week via, via social media, Andrew, but can I share with you my, to bring it full circle, my favorite passage from those like cheeky fake books bring it okay so this is from uh, a section called the overture and this is all about like style the overture wherein the prologue is a brief guide to the meaning of life prologue life is fate the world is one and many no one can tell when our world will end or even if it has an end a beginning or a middle we can only go with the flow and hope for the children a man is born he creeps through life on his metaphorical hands and knees seeking ever seeking seeking only to die with that question still on his lips what is it i seek and i'm paraphrasing here but as nietzsche said for everything there is a season thus begins the season of harry carruthers insurance salesman father lover and seeker Ever the seeking. wheel of time turns <laughs> like it's just and it's like you're writing a story about a guy who cheats on his wife with the babysitter and ends up losing his marriage and all his stuff but it's not about him it's about all of us and yeah. the universe and everything the, that's the that's the last thing we should say is that okay don't write your book like you'd write a tv show make people care about your characters don't like make really obvious ham-fisted symbolism be a big thing like if you have a if you have a point to make make it but don't say at the front or at the end of the book that that is the point you were trying to make trust the reader to make a connection how yeah, about they're not they're not idiots I mean, usually i mean we're idiots <laughs> but a lot of people who read books aren't idiots uh some of those people who are definitely not idiots Andrew, they were reaching out to us on social media this week. They were tweeting at us at twitter.com slash overdue pod. They were putting on our Facebook wall, putting stuff on our Facebook wall at facebook.com slash overdue pod. Uh, when we 
put out a call for writerly advice that uh, stuck in people's brains. Bookish Girl said uh, the quintessential write what you know uh, is you know something that you hear a lot. And she was happy that folks like Madeline Langle and Asimov and Margaret Atwood had decided to not write what they knew. <laughs> well, even that, even then, I think write what you know doesn't apply to like write about getting up and going into the rat race every day. Like maybe write what you know in terms of human emotions and reactions, but <laughs> yeah, don't feel don't feel bound to your sphere of experience. Like that's true. Um, the Bibliophilia podcast who tweeted at us said, uh, don't even think about writing a novel unless you read, which we talked about. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jocko said, writers write. And he's like, as in that sense of, you're not a writer unless you're writing. And he said, duh, I'm trying really hard. Uh, and then Haraya wrote, and she, uh, he or she actually don't know, put it in quotes, uh, write drunk, edit sober, which I think is perhaps pretty good. Words to live Words by. Words to live from by. From a professional writer to your ears. <laughs> um, last week, if you're listening to this, last week was Children's Book Week. We're still uh, working on getting our Children's Book bonus app out to you this month. Um, but we put out a call on Twitter and a lot of people were sharing their favorite uh, kids books so if you is really great there are so many if you need a like if you're buying books for kids or you are uh want to read some younger books uh check out our twitter feed re- recently we've got a bunch of recommendations i'm gonna run down the list andrew here we go okay i'm gonna hold on nicole renee jen ricey cleo megan patrick emily amber bookish girl again joe alex john tony Lindsay, cassie john and cena rob rachel haraya colleen nina ducky lee jocko amanda jillian <gasps> One of these times you're going to do that and you're just going to fall over. I'm going to explode. Uh, I'm going to have to do the podcast all by myself and I'm not looking forward to it. No, you're going to be just fine. We got some more recs on our Facebook page uh, from Albie, Laura, and Ricky. And uh, Sarah shared a funny toothpaste for dinner comic about apostrophes. And it said, apostrophes, get your apostrophes here. Extra apostrophes. You can use them for plurals and everything. Uh, and it had the way that you hate apostrophes, Andrew. So, mm-hmm. just like the way that every the way that every diner has spelled its specials <laughs> on its little sign since the beginning of time. Uh, Andrew, if people wanted to write us emails, like you read at the top of the show, where would they send them? They should send all of them emails, and we got more than we could talk about on this show, even though we talked about them a lot, to overduepod at gmail.com. They can also visit our internet website at overduepodcast.com. Um, up there, we've got uh, iTunes, Stitcher, RSS links that you can and should use to subscribe to the show. Once again, we're at 97 iTunes ratings, and we would love to to get into the triple digits on that one. So if you haven't rated us and you would like to you should go do that this week um we have got a link to our patreon site which is a way that people can financially support us which is much appreciated we use that money to buy books to buy equipment which we've already done we got craig a new microphone a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. Uh, we are going to be using that money to get future guest hosts a microphone so it doesn't sound like they're talking into a styrofoam cup attached to a string (laughs) 
are going to use that to advertise the show and, and get it out to more ears, which is something that we've been doing through all of 2015. And just, uh, it seems like, seems like we're on a pretty good upward trajectory, which I'm pretty happy about. That's patreon.com slash overdue pod. Um, we talked last week about how we were up to 150 and, People like has dialed it back or something. Like we have yeah, dropped down got, to people got wallet restrictions. This is cool, which is totally fine. We're we're down to one forty five. We're gonna go ahead with the bonus episodes anyway because I am sure that we will get back up to one hundred fifty and past. But uh, yeah, overdue dot com slash or Patreon dot com slash overdue pod is where you want to go to do that. Andrew, what is are you? Uh, that we need to talk. What about? are you reading next week? We're we're still planning our children's book app, so look for that. What are you reading? Um, I'm going to be reading The Tenet of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte, which cool. is our first, our first Bronte sister book. Breaking the Brontes. Breaking Bronte. Breaking Bronte. <laughs> um, anything else? Are we good? No, I'm working my way through Outlander. If you've got opinions about Outlander, I guess write them in. This... Yeah, you've got that one. I'm going to be reading The Borrowers for the children's book app. Um, you're going to be reading Mr. Popper's Penguins. Man, despite, those penguins are crazy. Dis- despite popular demand for Mrs. Pigglewiggle. We'll talk about how hard it is to find Miss Pigglewiggle. Don't you worry about it. All right. Everybody, try to find Miss Pigglewiggle and also try to be happy. <laughs>